you're nervous about the length of the text in the bulletin this morning, um, you should be. Um, but we're, we're actually not going to do that today. Uh, we're going to start Judges next week. Uh, this has kind of been one of those weeks where we're looking at something, we're looking at something a little different today. And then we're going to start uh, Judges chapter 1 next week. So you can worry about the long text for next week. Uh, but I know I've trained you all not to bring Bibles now, so I'm going to do something I, I wouldn't normally do. I'm going to encourage you to pull out your smartphones uh, if you've got a Bible app on them. Uh, and, because we're going to be looking at Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And as you, as you find that, uh, I'm not going to read it all up front. We're going to, I'm going to talk about it kind of as we go. So that's the way we're going to get out of today. But let me let me let me pray for us before we begin. But Father, this is your word, and it uh, speaks truth to us because it is truth. And I pray that you'd use it to help us, to heal us, and to encourage us today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking to, to Steve Hyatt before the service a little bit. He's working at Spartanburg Regional now, and he said that they're running right now at 110% of capacity. Uh, it happens so every once in a while in the winter. They're just kind of overwhelmed by everything. And, and there's been years, I think, when it's been worse than that, with the flu and everything that starts going around. Um, I can remember one year when we, we didn't wind up contributing to the people at Regional, but we were very close uh, when Jack was less than a year old, we took uh, a Thanksgiving trip to my parents. And on the way to my parents' house, Will came down with the flu. Uh, he was about three then. While we were there, Emma came down with the flu. And Jack came down with the flu. And Susan came down with the flu. My mom came down with the flu. And my dad came down with the flu. Uh, the only people that didn't get it were, were me and my 90-year-old grandmother. <laughs> I guess that's how she got to be nice. Didn't catch the flu. But but you know those times in life when when it's just kind of well, that, that's funny in retrospect, but that was miserable right then. Uh, and and y'all know those times in life, especially those of you with young children, when everybody has the same sickness, when the stomach bug is going through, and everybody doesn't get it at once. It just kind of slowly leaches through your house, um, and and it's just awful. Uh, we go through stretches like that. But wouldn't it be great if that was the worst thing we ever had to deal with? I mean, as miserable as those times are, wouldn't it be great if that was the worst thing we ever had to deal with in our lives? It was a little flu or a stomach bug every now and then. Because uh, there are things that we will face in life that are much worse than that. Other things we face in life at times uh, that can cause our faith to waver. The circumstances of life and time can just kind of smack you so hard in the face that you feel like faith is really not what's carrying you, that your life feels more dominated in those moments by doubts. What do we do with those doubts? Uh, Oz Guinness wrote a book years ago called God in the Dark. Uh, and in the book, he tells a story of being in Europe and seeing a guy who was, he had a donkey who was carrying a load of firewood up a very steep mountain. And as the donkey was going up the mountain, it kept getting slower and slower. And so his solution to this was to beat the donkey. And to beat the donkey harder. And the slower the donkey got, the more he would beat the donkey. Until finally the donkey was like, I got enough of this. Uh, and it just sat down and quit. And he beat it some more, and then that was the end of it. 
Guinness made the comment that that's the way that Christians try to treat our faith sometimes. When we're having these wrestlings with doubt, we almost beat ourselves up over it, saying, you just got to believe, you just got to believe, suppress the doubt, don't think about those things, just believe. It's like we're trying to will ourselves into some kind of belief. Uh, some people, when we are wrestling with this, would even tell us that, you know, your real problem is that you just don't believe enough. That your real problem is your lack of faith. And that really uh, works against us. Because it points us back inside of ourselves instead of actually pointing us to God, to the one who can help us. But we began to think, this is my fault. I got myself into this. I've got to fix this. I've got to overcome these circumstances. And then if you're a believer, you're always kind of carrying around that verse that says rejoice in the Lord always. And you don't feel a lot like rejoicing. And you feel guilty about that as well. And so we, we, we take the advice that Marge Simpson gave to Maggie one time. Uh, she said to her, Maggie, what you've got to do is you've just got to stuff all that sadness down inside you and put on a happy face so that everybody will think everything is okay. And that's the way we feel we've got to live our lives sometimes. We can't be honest about the things that we're wrestling with and the struggles that we have. Praise Jesus. That's what we say. But on the inside, we're rotting away. And we stuff everything down inside and we just cut ourselves off from other people. So what do we do with all that? What do we do when life just really stinks? What do we do when the realities of life begin to cause our faith to waver and we actually begin to experience doubts? Well, Psalm 73, um, this is your guide if you're going through one of those times in life. Uh, it's called a psalm of Asaph, and, and Asaph was a, was a choir director, uh, and this was written either by him or by someone in his choir. And so what I want to do is we're going we're gonna to work our way through the whole psalm, we're going to do it a little bit at a time. So let me start with us, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, the psalmist is getting us ready here for the story he's about to tell. And it's almost as if he wants to add a little disclaimer before he begins to, to tell his story. He's saying, look, what, what, what I'm about to tell you is going to be graphic. It may be a little disturbing to you. Um, it, it's going to challenge you in uncomfortable ways. But what you need to keep in mind as we work through this is that God is good. That no matter what struggle I express, you need to remember that God is good. That God is good, he says, to, to those in Israel who are pure in heart. And that's a reference to those in Israel who have committed themselves to follow God, to follow the Lord. And he said, look, if you are committed to the Lord, if you're one of those followers of the Lord, then you can know that He will be good to you. That that's what His character is. I know this, and you should know this, that God is a good God, and He is always good to His people. But, but, He says, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you my story. Because my feet had almost slipped. 
I had almost lost my foothold. I was climbing the mountain and I was starting to slide back down. I almost let go. My faith was in danger. Maybe you've been in that position. Maybe you're there now. You want to trust God, but life seems to keep just throwing one thing after another at you and you're finding it very hard to trust God. You, You feel like you're about to slip feel like you're about to fall. You feel like you're about to let go of everything. You're losing sleep. You're tormented by hard questions. The baby won't quit crying. Uh, you're just in one of those places. The pain won't go away. And so you're tempted to doubt God's goodness, maybe. Uh, his trustworthiness. Maybe you're even wrestling with His existence. God, how can you really be there if my life is like this? So what does this psalm then Tell us. Well, first of all, we're going to see well, we're going to see three things from this. I want us to look at what caused the psalmist doubts, what caused him to doubt, and then we're going to talk about the right way to handle doubt, and then look at the result of handling doubt in the right way. So, what was the cause of his struggles? Why was he struggling so badly here? He knew in his head that God was good, but his feet were, were starting to slip anyway. Why? Well, look at verse 3. I, I read it already. Let me read it again. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All right, pretty self-explanatory. The psalmist looked around and he saw the way in which wicked people were having good lives, were having successful lives, and he was envious of that. Look at verse 4. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. All right, this, this pains until death is a metaphor. He's basically saying they've got an easy life. They're fat and sleek. And, and we might say they're fat and happy. All right? Um, everything seems to be going well with them. They're well fed. They, they get to do what they want to do. They have an easy life. They don't seem to have a care in the world. And then look at verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. That's a fun image. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. And their tongue struts through the earth. The psalmist looked at the people around him and they were healthy. They were wealthy. They were wicked. But they were living good lives. They had everything that they could ever want. They were prideful. They were evil. They were hard-hearted. They were scoffing. But things seemed to be going well for them. And he couldn't get that. That didn't compute for him. How can these arrogant, oppressive people, these people who don't follow God, how can they have such good lives? How can these mockers of God be so fat and happy when I'm so miserable? One commentator said they strode across the stage as if the world belonged to them. Everything went well for them. Not only that, look at verse 10. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And the idea here is that the people of Israel are drinking it up. The people of Israel see these people who have abandoned God and yet are having good lives 
And they're saying, well, hey, I kind of like to live the good life too. And so they're following in the footsteps of those who have turned their backs on God. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Uh, the, the people are even gloating in their prosperity. Look, God's not doing anything about it. He either doesn't see what we're doing or He doesn't care what we're doing because we're obviously getting away with it. And so the psalmist is distressed. He's looking at people living lives of doing whatever they want to do, doing what's right in their own eyes. And they're successful and they're happy and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And he's disturbed by it. It drives him to doubt, to despair when he compares that to his own life. Many years ago, some of you will remember uh, James Carville was a, a political commentator, and he once said about a presidential race, it's the economy, stupid. And his point was that, look, as long as, as people have money in their pockets, they're going to be happy. If the economy's bad, they're going to vote for somebody who's going to put money in their pockets. That's what all the elections come down to at the end of the day, he says. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to take care of the bottom line? Bob Costas, uh, a sports commentator, once said that we live in, a, in an aggressively stupid celebrity culture. Kind of interesting coming from him. And, and his point was that we are just enamored with celebrity. We're enamored with wealth. Uh, we're enamored with, with Hollywood and the rich and famous and everything that comes with that. And we listen to what they say. We, we may realize they're wicked and they're arrogant. And in some ways, not everybody, we may realize that some are wicked and arrogant. And we may say, well, that's not right. But at the same time that we're saying that's not right, we're secretly envying the same people that we say we despise. I don't like what they're doing, but I really wish that I had that. It just looks so appealing. Why can't my life be like that. We even see that in the church as we follow after leaders who promise us prosperity and health and wealth and we'll simply do what they say. Sometimes we sort of wake up. We have those moments when we realize we're doing that. We're the ones following along like that. But other times we're really like the psalmist. We're, we're really trying to follow God. But we look at the people around us following after the wicked, and, and we say, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Why is it going so well for you and so poorly for me? Why do you prosper when you're not following God and I don't when I am trying to follow God? So he's he's kind of got the blues here, okay? Um, he, he, you know, he's, he's, he's hanging out at Panera, he's reflecting on life, and he looks at everybody coming in and out, he's like, man, I just... I wish I was in somebody else's shoes. I don't get what life is like. Look at verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Again, he looks at their lives he looks at how bad his life is. 
I'm really trying to follow you, God, and my life is absolutely terrible, and their life is absolutely great, and I don't get it. I don't get it. And you can feel it almost pushing him over the edge here. In vain. It's useless. It's useless that I've done the right thing and followed after you. What difference does it make? What difference has it actually made in my life? Am I doing all this for nothing? I mean, these people lie and they cheat and, and, and they just commit sin after sin after sin. And yes, there's sin in my life, Lord, but I'm, I'm trying. I, I show up at church. I make an effort to read my Bible. I'm trying to raise my children in the right way. I'm, I'm doing the things you ask of me. And yet here I am in danger of losing my job. I failed this class that I couldn't fail. My marriage is a wreck and I don't understand why. I'm sick again for the fifth time. This year the kids are sick again. My parents are going through something that I don't know what they're going through, but I can't figure out how to help them. And then I spent an hour in Walmart trying to find something and I got it home and there was a part missing. And I got to go stand in customer service at Walmart. Which may be the worst of all. Um, you know, Lord, what, what's the point? Why am I wasting my time trying to do the right thing if this is all that life is going to give me? You ever felt like that? Okay, if you're not nodding, you're scared to nod your heads, aren't you? <laughs> because if you haven't felt like that, I'm going to say that at some point you will. Uh, you toss, you turn, you get frustrated, you, you lose sleep, you question your faith, you question God's word. You don't know what to do. You wonder why God allows suffering, or at least why He's allowing your suffering. And you want to scream. What's the point? What's the point? Doubt is very real. And it's very brutal. When, when you're in this type of doubt, it's kind of like you're trapped halfway between belief and unbelief. And you're just turning and turning in on yourself. So what do you do? What do you do with that? When your feet are about to slip, what do you do with that? Well, let's, let's keep looking. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. That's kind of an interesting place to start. The first advice we get from this is the psalmist says, don't shout it in the streets. He, he, he wants to. He really wants to kind of, kind of running down the aisle of the congregation saying, I don't get it. I, I, I really don't think that God is good after all. But then he stops and he thinks about his situation for a minute. And he takes another look at it. He considers the consequences and he says to himself, look, my faith is shaken, but I'm not helping anybody if I shake anybody else's faith. And there's something in that for us um, to learn. It's certainly proper to, to talk to people when you're struggling. Right? You don't want to push that all inside. You need to ask people to pray for you. It's wise to seek counsel from more mature believers. But we don't just run around shouting it from the rooftops. We don't just run around emotionally vomiting on everybody with all of our doubts and our turmoils. Each, each person that we run into saying, I don't know if this is real. I don't understand why God allows this. There's a way to talk about our doubts and struggles, and there's a way not to talk about it. 
And it would seem from the psalm that there may be a point where you do give a public uh, rehearsal of the events, but it seems that it's after God has brought you through it. And then you're able to give testimony to what God has done in your life and give encouragement to other people like, yeah, I've been there. Here's how God is good. And here is how God brought me through this. So we don't shout it in the streets. But, but neither do we wallow in it and try to figure it out on our own. Um, we don't have the right to place God on trial. And on the other hand, it's, it's not possible anyway for us to, to answer all the hard questions that we may have uh, about how God governs the world. There's always going to be questions. Why do the, the wicked prosper while the righteous suffer at times? Why is there evil in the universe if God is good and all-powerful? Uh, if God is good, then He has a good reason for the existence of evil, and it's tied up with His own glory. But we can't get much further than that. We can't fully understand that. And if we continue to just wrestle and churn with those things, it's dangerous, it won't get you anywhere, and, and really in the end of the day, it'll just give you a big headache. Uh, which is what the psalmist actually says here, verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That to just keep churning like this and keep thinking on it, it just, it's just going to wear you out. You're not going to figure it out. And so we don't shout it in the streets. We don't just kind of turn in on ourselves and try to figure it out on our own. But neither do we suppress the doubts and just bottle them up inside. I think a lot of times we feel this pressure to say, hey, everything's good. Everything's good. We do that with other people, other believers. We also do that sometimes, I think, when we when we pray. Um, we're not able to be gut-level honest with God about what's really going on in our lives and what we really think. And we feel like there's this proper way. I've got to get, I've got to get my attitude just right before I pray or God's not going to hear my prayer. And so we're afraid to be honest. As if uh, he doesn't know what you really feel and are thinking anyway. And what the emotions really are that are turning in our hearts. Now, it is true that we don't have a right to grumble. We don't have a right to complain or to shake our fist at God. But this psalm and other psalms as well really do show people being honest with God. And pouring out what they're really feeling to him. Let me, let me read... Uh, if you do have a Bible, we're going to do a quick survey here. I just want you to hear, these are Bible prayers, okay? Psalm 22.1. And this, this was actually on the words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That's a, that's a prayer in the Bible that God's people are encouraged to actually use. Uh, Psalm 69. Verses 1 through 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. I'm worn out 
waiting on God to act. Um, Psalm 74, verses 1 and 2 again. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you dwell. And then I won't read it all, but probably the most uh, well-known and least used of these is Psalm 88, um, which starts bad and doesn't get any better. Uh, verse 1, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to the grave. The last verse, you've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's how that song ends. All of these writers, they feel bad, okay? They feel bad about themselves. They feel bad about their circumstances. And they feel bad about God even. And again, they don't express anger. They express hurt. Uh, They don't express rebellion. They do express confusion. Because they are confused. And they're desperate. And you may even feel that way right now. but, But... we so often just try to flatline the Christian life. And think if we're not always kind of on this peak, then something's wrong with us. And the Psalms gives us, give us these legitimate vehicles to express our desperation and our confusion and our pain. Uh, we do want to rejoice. We do want to see a movement in our life to rejoicing and to rejoicing in the Lord. That's absolutely true. But we have to realize that you can't just fake that. And you can't just put on a happy face. And the, 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 the road to that rejoicing often has to go through the valley of mourning first in order to get there. And you can't short circuit um, or try to skip that part of the process. The Psalms remind us that even in difficult times, it's legitimate to express our emotions to God. Now, we do have we're talking to God, right? Okay, uh, and so we have to be careful about that. Richard Pratt has a book called "Pray with Your Eyes Open," and he suggests a couple of things. One, he says, even as you're being honest, you have to maintain a, a fundamental trust in God's goodness. He says we shouldn't ask God, "Are you good?" but ask Him, "God, how do these events harmonize with the fact that you were good?" I'm confused. I, I can't understand it from my vantage point. Because we shouldn't be motivated by greed in our prayers. And that we need to be open to receiving God's answer with gratitude. Even when we don't get the answer we would like. But we do bring them to Him. We take our doubts and our troubles and our heartaches. And we pour them out to our Father in Heaven. And that brings us to verse 17. Actually, let me read 16 again. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, until, until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Uh, the word sanctuary here may mean that the psalmist actually came into the temple. Or it may simply mean that he had drawn near in his own heart, his own life to God. 
he was finally dealing with all this in the right way. He wasn't angry about it. He wasn't suppressing it. He wasn't shouting it from the streets. But he was actually bringing all of this pain in his life, and he was bringing it to the only one who could do anything about it. He was bringing it to God. We are called to do the same, to humbly bring our troubles to God. Jesus is the one who says, right, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. You'll find the rest in me. None of us are immune from this. None of us are immune from the doubts and the struggles. And so we have to learn to bring these to God. Even John the Baptist went through this. One of the more famous verses in Scripture, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus because John the Baptist, things aren't going too well for him. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you really who I think you are? Because this isn't working right. It's not working the way I expected it. Are you the coming one or should we start looking for somebody else? He doubted. But he knew what to do with his doubts. He knew where to take his doubts. And so we take these doubts to God. And, and then finally, I want you to see what happens as we do this. And I'll wrap up with this. What happens when we handle our doubts and our pain and our confusion in the right way? Uh, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. This psalm is, it, is an odd way, but it's, it's meant to comfort the psalmist in this. He's saying that what he saw was all of these people who looked so prosperous and looked like everything was going to end all right with them, it actually ends very badly for them. That their prosperity is an illusion that will disappear. And that he has no need to envy that. That God is going to set all things right. That God is a righteous judge. And the books will be squared one day. And so he should not envy those who are living and seemingly prospering in this way. And there's also buried in this a warning. That if you are one of those whose life seems... If you're fat and happy, even though you're ignoring God then there's a warning in us that it's not going to last. That God is a just God. And He will not allow that to last. He will see that wrongs are righted. He will see that sin is judged. And so the psalmist, as he brings his doubts to the right place, he sees he doesn't have to envy the wicked because he sees their final destiny. Well, then look at the second thing that happened. When my soul, verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Uh, we talked earlier and said there's a balance in this in honestly expressing our doubts and our pain to God, but doing it in the right way. And realizing that we are talking to God. And the psalmist seems to realize here that in his heart, he had kind of crossed the line. And he had gone further than he needed to in his uh, expression of, of what was going on in his life. And he realized that he had moved past expressing his doubt into complaining and coveting the treasures of the wicked, coveting earthly treasures. And so one of the things that has to happen 
uh, one of the things that happens as we bring our doubts to God is He begins to show us, look, some of these doubts may be legitimate, but some of them are connected to sin in your hearts. And sin does fuel our doubt. And so He reveals that to us. And the third thing here, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me the glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The final thing that the psalmist realizes, perhaps the most important thing, is he draws near to God because he realizes the goodness of God. And he's overwhelmed by the goodness of God. He realizes as he spends time with God, that God is the one who has guided him and kept him through his struggle with God. God is the one that even though it felt like his feet were slipping, God is the one who kept his feet slipping. God is the one who has given him strength. God is the one who has given him courage and comfort. And he realizes that this same God who has kept him, who's kept him from falling over the edge, this same God is going to carry him home to glory. That this same God will see him through to eternal life. And so he praises God. His doubt has begun to be changed into rejoicing by the simple act of drawing near to God. He's assured of God's protection. He's assured of God's guidance. And he's realized he can face the world because he realizes that God is with him in the midst of all of it. He realizes that it's it's God that's kept him thus far, that God is the one who's kept him through his struggle with doubt. That God has sustained him that he has been good to him, that ultimately God is the one that he needs. One guy put it this way, he said, By faith we hold on to God, but our grip is often feeble. Our great safety lies in this, that God holds us. That God holds us with an omnipotent grasp and never entirely lets us go. Our great hope is not in how strong, how able we are to hold on to God, but our great hope is in the fact that God is holding on to us and will not let us go. Some of you may be hurting this morning. You're confused by life. You're wrestling with doubts. You're tired. You don't understand. The New Testament completes for us the revelation that the the Old Testament begins. The New Testament tells us that even in our tiredness and confusion, we can draw near to God because God has drawn near to us. What we have celebrated even in the Christmas season, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that we have seen His glory, that God has come near. Emmanuel, God with us, full of grace and truth. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, if you are wrestling with painful things, hard things, things that are causing you to doubt, don't run around yelling it to everybody, but do find somebody to talk to about it. 
Don't stuff it down inside, but ultimately you have to bring it to God. Give it to Him. Be reminded of who He is. Draw near to Him. Come to Jesus and find comfort and rest, forgiveness, healing, and hope. Because Jesus is Jesus is not unfamiliar with what you're going through. Uh, the New Testament tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows. That he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to wrestle. He knows what it is to be lonely. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. And yet he went through all of that. He went through death itself on the cross for so that one day you would no longer have to fear being lonely or abandoned or sinned against or hurt. You'd no longer have to be confused, but you would be made whole and well, but you would know him and be with him for all eternity. And so my encouragement to you is to come to Jesus. And I would say this too practically, that can sound kind of, oh, that sounds nice, come to Jesus. What does that look like? Well, for, for one thing, we simply open his word like we did this morning. And we gather together and we hear from God and we listen to God and we sing together. And even if you're in too much pain to sing, you sit and you listen to everybody else sing and have your hearts and your faces turned away from yourself and turned toward Jesus. And there will be some crying in that. But there, that, that act in and of itself is hope reducing as well. Because it's in that act of praising God and praising God together with His people that we learn about faith and hope and love. We even found, find joy together in the end. You pray for us. Father, there are many uh, hard and, and difficult things in our lives, things that we don't understand. God, I pray that you help us not to, to hide those, not to um, try to figure things out on our own, but you help us to come to you and see that you're good, see that you love us, see that you provide forgiveness for us in Christ, see that you provide hope for us in his resurrection God, help us to see that you're good. Help us to draw near to you and see our mourning and doubt turned into rejoicing in faith. We pray it in Jesus' name.